The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. Professor Nick Wood's COVID-19 vaccine program update will cover these important topics. A third dose for the immunocompromised person, the TGA advice on overseas COVID vaccines, COVID-19 in teens and children, the Merck oral antiviral monopivirer, an update on vaccine medical exemption, and what living with COVID-19 will look like. Uh, Hello everyone and welcome to the HealthEd COVID-19 vaccine program update. I'm Associate Professor Nick Wood from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. Uh, In today's talk, we'll be looking at the latest um, updates, including the third dose for the immunocompromised, a little bit on the TGA advice for how to deal with overseas COVID vaccines, Um, Update on COVID in teens and children, particularly the burden and the vaccine safety data. I'll also be telling you a little bit about Merck and its new, hard to say, antiviral molnupiravir, I knew it was hard to say, and updated vaccine medical exemptions, and then finally what life uh, might look uh, like in the future. So firstly, the third dose for the immunocompromised. Um, ATAGI uh, just a few days ago announced their recommendations for a third use of a primary dose vaccine. Um, This is slightly different to the uh, booster dose. So this is really a third dose as part of the primary series. Um, And so there are selected populations that are recommended this third dose. Um, There's a preference to use Pfizer or Moderna vaccine um, as the third dose. There is a note in the statement which says that if um, AstraZeneca can be used if there were no adverse events after the first dose or if there's a contraindication to one of the mRNA vaccines. Ideally, we give this at two to six months after that second dose. So um, if people are at the six month mark already, uh, they should try and get their third dose as soon as possible. Um, And in limited situations, you could give it a bit earlier, such as if a person was about to start um, more immune suppression therapy. Um, At the moment, uh, measurement of their antibodies by serology is not recommended as a routine. Um, And these people, um, because responses may not be as ideal even after the third dose, it's important that they continue public health measures such as masks and social distancing. Um, now, the big question is, what about booster doses for the rest of us? Um, there is a target advice which is anticipated on this, and it may well be that the initial groups are the frontline workers and potentially the older members of our society. Um, now, the main reason for the third dose is that we know that the immune compromised have an increased morbidity from the virus. Their immune responses to the first two doses are not as good as we'd like and we are seeing some breakthrough infections in in those people that had just the two doses. And the idea is to give them the third dose to maximise their protection. So there have been some studies that have done this, admittedly not large numbers of people that are immune suppressed. Uh, This was one study, which is a preprint, and you um, showing that the responses to the third dose 
Um, in the figure there is the percent seroconversion. So that's those people that go from having not detectable antibody to having a, a rise to detectable antibody. And you can see they make a good response to both the vector and, and mRNA vaccine. And importantly, it's really the people that, are B -cell, that have B cells that make a, a better response compared to those that don't have any B cells. Another paper which was published in JAMA, uh, JAMA also talks about the third doses and this is the third dose response in those that had a kidney transplant. And these were people that had not really responded much to the uh, two doses. Um, and they got a third dose of the Moderna vaccine and you can see their uh, pre-response pre um, and their third dose response there with the majority of people making antibody. So there's a long list of people that are recommended um, for that third dose. Uh, this is just a summary here. Uh, what I would advise you to do is to go and look onto the ATAGI statement, just to look in much more detail about what exactly is the um, risk groups. Um, and it includes the usual people that have either hematological or non-hematological malignancies and are on immune suppression. And importantly, there's a note there about those people that are on uh, prednisolone. So that should be more than 20 milligrams per day of prednisolone for more than uh, 14 days in a month. Uh, so those people, which is, could be a, a large amount of people, um, should be given a third dose. And then the big question is how safe is this third dose? Um, a TAGI document notes this, that there, although the studies were limited, uh, there have been not any um, significant safety concerns um, uh, and, and importantly no evidence of myocarditis or TTS. But it is important to note that this, the size of these samples is, is quite small. Um, now in terms of just routine third dose responses, this is some data from the US uh, from the system called vSafe. VSAFE is very similar to our OSVAC safety system where you, uh, we do active surveillance where people get an SMS text in the days after. And so this was done in around about just over 20,000 people who'd received a third dose. And you can see um, either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, the third dose percentages of having injection site and fatigue were quite uh, prominent, above 50%, but then other things like uh, muscle aches and headaches and fever were also present. Now, these sorts of side effects are very similar to what we see with the second dose. So, and when we compare second dose adverse events with third dose adverse events, there weren't any uh, major safety concerns noted at the moment. So, so watch this space. Um, the, I suspect there'll be a lot of um, activity uh, with those that are immune suppressed wanting to go and get a third dose. Um, and so that can, be, can start. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, with a preference for the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, and uh, starting at the two month up to the six month mark after that uh, finishing their second dose. And uh, boosters for the rest of the population, um, we'll see some advice coming on that, out on that very soon. The next topic is uh, TGA advice on the overseas vaccines. Um, this is a little bit boutique, but it may be something that you're seeing where people have had overseas vaccines and particularly keen to get these vaccines recognised or registered so that, um, as we know in society, the double vaccinated uh, group will have a bit more activity than, than those that are unvaccinated. So the TGA has determined that these two vaccines here, Sinovac, um, Coronavac and Covishield, which is the uh, same uh, version as the AstraZeneca vaccine that we're using are considered as recognised vaccines. So 
Um, if people have documentation of two of these uh, doses, then they can be considered to be vaccinated as per the Australian schedule. And you can fill out uh, there's different forms depending on which state you're in. But one of the forms, for example, in New South Wales is a medical exemption form and you can use that as a temporary form to, to fill out uh, that the person has had the two recognised doses. Uh, for these other vaccines listed below, the TGA determined that Sinopharm was not considered comparable to our current registered vaccines. And for the following, uh, CanSino, Sputnik and Covaxin, they'd not yet made a determination. So if people had had these two vaccines, I think it becomes a bit of a risk-benefit discussion uh, with them. Um, if they've had two doses of these vaccines, um, whether or not they should have you know, further um, either Pfizer or AstraZeneca or Moderna vaccines in Australia. Um, we don't have a lot of data on, for example, two doses of Sputnik vaccine followed by you know, two doses of Pfizer vaccine. So it's a little bit hard to counsel people, but um, I think what you could, uh, the one approach would be to say to them, look, in order to get you fully vaccinated in, in according to the Australian registered vaccines, give you a dose of Pfizer vaccine and um, we can then see how you, how you go in terms of reactogenicity. Um, I think it, we've had some experience with this and there hasn't been a major concern, but it's hard to give absolute precise estimates because there's not a lot of data out there on, on the risk of, you know, um, of side effects with this, uh, with this um, vaccine schedule. Um, what is coming is that there'll be an ability to add these overseas vaccines onto the air. Um, I understand it's not quite active yet, but the air is certainly working on that. Um, just to jump to the severity of COVID infection in children and a little bit on the latest vaccine safety data. Um, this is um, data coming out of the US and you can see this is hospitalizations data and you can see their sort of first peak um, of disease earlier in this year and then this another peak just in October. Um, and the, the graph over here, which is showing the um, hospitalizations in the October period, um, this higher line here is the older age group and the yellow line is the children and I've shown you the children here um, and what you can see is there certainly has been an uptick in children but this rate is only about 0.5 per 100,000 so that's about 1 in 200,000 kids ending up in hospital so not very, not very common um, and so that's, that's some good news so although there was more disease there didn't seem to be a peak in, in um, uh, hospitalisations. A nice paper which has just come out uh, in preprint again out of the UK and this is looking at children that had both the Delta and the Alpha variant and they're comparing them and, and there's not a huge number of kids but around about 700 children um, who had the Alpha variant and about 700 children who had the Delta variant and you can see the numbers presenting to hospital um, in the overall in the Alpha variant was about 2% and the Delta variant about 2.2 and, and the number that having illness for more than 28 days whoops, uh, was about, about um, uh, you know, 1.7 per cent in the in the alpha variant and 2.1 in the delta variant. So not a big up, uptick in hospitalizations with the delta variant, although there probably is more cases. And that's important as we go into sort of loosening up in both in the Australian environment, where we are likely to see more infection um, in kids. Um, but the international literature at the moment is not supporting an increase in severity. Um, and the other thing that the uh, UK have done in that particular paper is they looked at the types of symptoms 
um, and compared the alpha variant with the delta variant and this is younger children on the left in the red here and older children in the blue and what appears to be quite a common um, symptom for the delta variant is, is headache and fatigue and a little bit of fever. Um, so not so much the, the runny nose and the cough are still there but um, headache is what I understand to be um, quite a common fever with, with the Delta variant. In terms of safety, uh, this is the data we have now in adolescents, age 12 to 17, and uh, you can see here nearly 150,000 um, surveys on, on adolescents after dose one, and about 33,000 after dose two, and it mirrors what we see in the adults again, around about, um, so that the take home points really are that there's more side effects after dose two compared to dose one, um, and the dominant side effects are fatigue, headache, and muscle aches. Um, so that's very similar to what we saw with the adults. And interestingly, about one in five um, did say that it, they knocked them around a little bit such that they had to take some time off school um, or off their normal um, sporting activities. Um, we're trying to get some more information on Moderna. This is some early data after dose one of Moderna with about 2,000 people reported. And you can see again about one in three have got local reactions, some fatigue and headache. And this is just dose one. Um, we'll be reporting on dose two data as it comes in. Um, the, the interval between dose one and dose two in Moderna is a 28 day interval. Um, now you probably all heard about this uh, international um, press about um, Scandinavian countries suspending the use for Moderna in the younger age groups um, and so that's uh, the ABC reported on that. Uh, this is a, a link to the Norwegian um, Public Health Agency. Um, in addition Ontario and Canada has also rec made a preferential recommendation for the um, Pfizer vaccine in the younger people. And this is, um, this is the data from Ontario um, and you can, this is the uh, rate um, of myocarditis or pericarditis and it's per million doses, okay? Um, and this is after dose two. Um, and you can see that the blue here in Moderna is certainly a higher rate with Moderna compared to the, um, uh, the Pfizer in the green here. And the other um, thing is it peaks around about that 18 to 25 year old age group. Um, so so that's, uh, that's why Ontario had made a preference for Pfizer. What we do know about the myocarditis so far is that it is predominantly in young males, as shown here, mainly after dose two. Most of them make complete recovery. Um, and I think if they do have to happen, if it does actually happen after dose one, then for those that are under the age of 18, um, we don't want to give another dose, particularly for those that have myocarditis. Um, and so you can fill out a medical exemption or uh, for those over the age of 18 and we need to seek specialist advice either via the immunisation specialist service or via a cardiologist. Um, in the over 18s there's thoughts about whether or not to change them to AstraZeneca for their second dose. In the under 18s that's not really an option because um, AstraZeneca is not licensed in the under 18. So if someone does have myocarditis under 18, uh, then they should be seen by a cardiologist and followed up. For the more common pericarditis, there will be some advice coming soon, uh, but for the moment, m my recommendation is to talk to the cardiologist or an immunization specialist service. Um, so a little bit about Merck and the new vaccine, uh, sorry, the new antiviral, which is called molnupiravir. 
Um, is th this is an antiviral which is designed to disrupt the replication of the virus. It, it mimics these two natural compounds of cytidine and, and uridine which is needed to make the mRNA and, and it inserts that into the RNA structure uh, and then basically stops the virus replicating. Um, so the federal government, uh, even though it's not yet approved, the, the TGA has made it initial steps, which is the provisional determination, but it's not yet registered, has actually bought up some doses of this um, antiviral. There's a couple of papers. There's a phase 2A paper which has been published, and this looks at different doses, a 200 milligram, 400 and 800 milligram dose. Um, and this just shows the fact that you can clear the virus um, uh, fast with this particular antiviral by day three. Um, only 1.9% of the people were positive compared to placebo. So it make, basically makes you clear the virus faster. Based on that, the company went off to do a um, larger phase two, three uh, trial. And this was the registered trial on clinicaltrials.gov. And just recently, uh, as of a week ago or so, uh, Merck had announced just by a press release that um, their particular product was able to reduce the death, the risk of hospitalisation or death by about 50%. And they actually paused the study based on that. So, so there'll be more data coming. Um, this is not yet a publication. It's just a press release from Merck. Um, the regulators will be looking in much more detail at this particular product um, and it might well be something that has started um, out there in the community to stop people getting um, nasty uh, COVID once they're in infected. Uh, the next topic to talk about is the medical exemptions. Um, and this is quite important because as we've all found that the double vaxxed people will be able to have a bit more of a life in society. Um, so, so there are... Um, Two questions really. One is how, when can I grant it and how do I grant an exemption? Just to remind you, this is a nice table on the MVAC um, website. Um, this is the contraindications to the mRNA vaccines. Um, it really is this anaphylaxis or the myocarditis story. And for the AstraZeneca vaccine, the main contraindications are an anaphylaxis to a previous dose or an ingredient. And then a list of these sorts of um, uh, venous thrombosis type problems. So even if you've had the, one of these uh, prior to getting first dose of AstraZeneca, the recommendation now is to not give you AstraZeneca. So they're the contraindications. Um, Atagi put out advice uh, recently, um, to, which is advice on how to, for clinicians on how to fill out these exemptions. Um, and importantly, as I mentioned before, if you've had myocarditis or pericarditis within the last six months, then that's an exemption. If you've had acute rheumatic heart disease at the moment or heart failure, then you can get an exemption to these mRNA vaccines. Um, what we might find in the future is that, or for some people in, in places of New South Wales and Victoria, they may well have had um, laboratory proven SARS co-infection. And the vaccination in these people should really be deferred until the patient makes a complete recovery and probably around about a six-month gap before you give that uh, vaccine. So if someone needs to show evidence of uh, the vaccination, you can use these um, uh, exemption forms um, that do exist in different states to fill in the fact that they've actually had lab-confirmed infection. Um, and then the other way to give people an exemption is if you can say that they've had a serious adverse event, which is defined as person is hospitalised, and that's been reported to the State and Territory Health or the TGA, and there's a risk of recurrence with another dose. 
An example of that is myocarditis. Uh, you might be hospitalised with myocarditis, it's been reported, and if you get another dose of mRNA, there is a risk of recurrence. So therefore you can get an exemption from the mRNA vaccine. And then the other group for whom you can fill out an exemption if there's a risk of harm during the vaccine procedure. For example, you, you don't want, you know, you can't get near the person because they don't, um, won't let you really vaccinate them and they don't understand. And this applies to some of the groups in our society, um, such as the developmental disabilities, etc. Um, so they're the reasons that you can fill out a temporary exemption. Uh, there is a uh, medical exemption form which has been updated on the government website which has the ability to tick those different um, uh, vaccines. And then finally, just to think a little bit about what we might be looking forward to in the future. Um, certainly as New South Wales opens, um, uh, there is this, as I mentioned, which is why the medical exemptions are important, um, a need to uh, show proof of full um, COVID vaccination or to show an exemption. And this is, for example, what is on New South Wales uh, website, government website, that you, uh, if you're over 16 and you want to go to some of these venues, you will need to show uh, proof of vaccination. And there are different ways to do that. You quite a nice link here, which is um, showing you the different op options to get your COVID digital certificate. Um, um, you can follow each of these. It's pretty simple to do. Um, to put them on an app and then put it in the wallet on your phone. And if people do have a medical exemption, then they either require that medical exemption form, which I showed you before, or there is a New South Wales specific uh, medical contraindication form, um, and there are other similar forms that exist in the other states and territories, or you get a medical clearance note. So that's some of the New South Wales information. But, so, but these are the ways really that you'd be able to show your COVID vaccination status. Um, so what I've hopefully tried to show you is a little bit on the third dose for the immune suppressed. And just to recap, um, that's those, there's a long list of um, people that are eligible for that. It is best to have a look at that ATAGI statement. Um, it's around about two to six months after their second dose. And the best vaccine to give is the mRNA, either the Pfizer or the Moderna. Um, as we're op opening up, we will see more disease in the community, probably. Um, how much? We're not too sure. But if the international experience is anything to go by, uh, we're not seeing severe and nasty disease in kids, which is good, particularly for those groups of kids in under 12 who are not yet vaccinated. Um, and there are movements uh, for new antivirals like molnupiravir, which are coming and possibly into play. Um, it'll be watch this space and we'll continue to come back and give you some updates. So thanks very much for listening. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, 
go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.